All those things are going on and so many others. But now we move to a time where we hear from Scripture. And I want to invite Rick Wisser. Rick, where are you? Come forward, and as Rick is coming forward, let me give you a little introduction into our scripture this morning. Over, the, over and over again over these last couple of months, as we've journeyed with the 12 disciples, Jesus has healed people with a simple word or a single touch. Each and every time, these miraculous cures were instantaneous. All of them, as I talked about last week, all of them all were intended to serve as signs, these miracles, as verification of the arrival of God's reign, of what Jesus proclaimed, the kingdom in and through him. But today, as Rick is about to read to us from the Gospel of Mark, as we come with Jesus to the town of Bethsaida, we will encounter something completely different. It's the only miracle story, in fact, that's found exclusively in the Gospel of Mark. And as Rick reads to us, see if you notice what's different. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. This is the word of God. Thanks be to the Lord. Thank you. That's right. So we find ourselves with Jesus in the town of Bethsaida, a town on the northeast shore of the Lake of Galilee, roughly four miles away from Capernaum. If you're kind of one of those people who tries to place it in your mind, John's gospel tells us that Bethsaida was the hometown of Peter and Andrew. And as we've seen before, Jesus' reputation once again precedes him as a healer, as some people, perhaps family, maybe friends, we don't know, bring a man who's been stricken blind to Jesus and they beg him to heal him. So Jesus takes this man out of the village away from the crowds. And up till now, if you were following along as Rick was reading, if your Bible's still open, there's nothing unusual here so far. All this is fairly pro forma as far as the miracles of Jesus go. So what's different? Well, before I answer that question for you, let me share that uh, I teach uh, Bible at our middle school, as you know, and sometimes have conversations before and after class. And one of the students was particularly interested in what I was preaching on, and so I shared it. And so just, you know, on a lark, because it's pretty short, I said, you know, I'm going to read this to you. Tell me if you notice what's different. You know, what have you never seen Jesus do before? <laughs> so I read it, and I said, so, did you hear anything different? And he goes, yeah, Jesus spit in his eye. <laughs> and that's true. Jesus has never done that before. But that's not the difference I'm going for. So if, you're, if your answer was, Jesus spit in his eye, ew, that's not where we're going this morning. <laughs> what makes this miracle stand apart is it seems like it occurs in slow motion, as I highlighted previously, the, every other miracle of Jesus took place instantly. However, if you've got it right in front of you, if you were listening, the blind man recovers his sight progressively in two stages. And if we, if we step back from it on the face of it, Jesus' first attempt at healing this blind man's eyes would appear to have fallen short of the goal as the man can only see partially. Not clearly. That's why he says, I, I see people but they look like trees walking about. Beloved, this is the only time in the Gospels Jesus had to perform a redo, a do-over. It took a second touch from Jesus for the man's eyes, his sight, to be fully restored. 
And maybe this doesn't strike you as odd, but for me, the way this miracle plays out seems strange in light of Jesus' earlier ability, if you remember these stories, to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead with a single word. Or how about that time when he cured the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years with just a simple touch of the edge of his cloak? Doesn't it make you wonder what's happening here? I mean, yeah, we can, the outcome is still the same. We can add this story to the rest as a demonstration of Jesus' healing power, as a sign of the kingdom. But don't you want to ask yourself why Jesus didn't heal this blind man in the first place? I do. So even if you don't care, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> One important clue, I think, for answering this question is to notice how this story, what happens here, is clearly linked with other events that have just taken place. We, we just saw, and, and it's been building, the blindness of the Pharisees. Remember last week? Unable to recognize the power of God in the works and words of Jesus. Also last week, we saw the blindness of Jesus' own disciples. When the second time thousands were fed, Jesus turns to them in the boat and says, Can you not see? Do you not understand? And even more than what's come before, interestingly, this decisive encounter in Bethsaida is going to later be bookended. We're going to get to it a little bit later in Mark chapter 10. It's going to be bookended by another story of a blind man, Bartimaeus, whose sight is also restored by Jesus. And if you go and look at it that way, sandwiched between these two stories of blind men who regain their sight is this revealing turning point in Jesus' relationship with his disciples. That's going to be our focus on Ash Wednesday. I hope you're here for it. So while we can't know for sure what motivated Jesus in this moment with this man, what I'd also argue is he's never before been inadequate in his healing power. So it almost seems, especially how Mark organizes it for us, it almost seems as if Jesus is using this healing as a kind of parable for the way his disciples see him. And, and I think there's really some interesting similarities between the gradual recovery of sight by the blind man and the gradual recognition of Jesus' identity and destiny as the Messiah by his disciples. Like the half-healed blind man, the disciples are at the halfway point of their journey in following Jesus. Again, on Ash Wednesday, we're going to get into this. And at the halfway point of their journey in following Jesus, they're about to have their eyes opened as it begins to dawn on them just who Jesus is. They'll begin to see, but only partially. Because as the shadow of the cross comes into view for the disciples, it will then obscure their vision of Jesus' role as the Messiah. Like the blind man, the disciples will need another touch of grace in order to see Jesus clearly. And this grace will come, to be sure, but only after the resurrection. So one way, I think, to see this unusual healing is as a prophetic gesture by Jesus symbolizing the opening of the disciples' eyes to his Messiahship. However, as interesting as that all is, there's even more for us to see here. The cure of this blind man is also a good example for me of how the Gospels, all of them, move on two levels. There's the obvious physical level of the miracles that are perceived by all, and then... And, with underneath, in between, there's this subtle spiritual level, the level of faith of Jesus as Lord and Savior. In the second level, Jesus sometimes calls out, he doesn't hear, where he says, your faith has made you well, or this has been revealed to you by God. So there's this interplay of physical and spiritual in the Gospels. 
In fact, it's been the strong consensus of the church throughout the centuries to understand this particular story and the other healing account of the blind man, Bartimaeus, to hear them both as metaphors for the life of discipleship. And you see, the reason for that is the key to understanding how this story works for Mark is that Mark, if you haven't seen it before, you, it just, you can't miss it now. Mark has this continual use of blindness. It's a continual emphasis that he makes. Blindness as a metaphor for spiritual dullness. That is, this blind man's ailment, his blindness not only symbolizes a physical ailment, but a spiritual condition that's not only his own, but it's also something that's troubling the disciples, all of us. Just as perhaps it did for the original disciples, I think this encounter can serve for us as a symbolic act for us to think about the three stages in our ability to see God our Father and experience his presence. Three stages, blindness, partial sight, and full vision. First, we need to recognize that apart from Jesus, we're totally blind. First, we need to recognize that apart from Jesus, we're totally blind. Now, for many of us here today, that may be very obvious. We have no problem with that, saying that, so we could just move on. But I don't know if we've really let that sink in. Apart from Jesus, we are totally blind. Because oftentimes we talk, oftentimes we act, oftentimes we believe that the way of Jesus Following Jesus is more like a pair of religious glasses. It's more like a spiritual set of contact lenses. That, that we just, you know, we come to Jesus with our blind spots. We all have blind spots, right? And we come to Jesus with our blind spots in our life. And we, Jesus gives us new glasses. He gives us contact lenses. And he helps us to see our life to view this world better. But that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The gospel says we act like we know what we're doing. The gospel says we think we know where we're going. The gospel says we believe we know how to get there. But the truth is we're spiritually blind. We see nothing. We're stumbling around in the dark apart from Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a tough admission to make. If you were with us last week, I kind of opened up a little bit and, and shared with you why that can be a tough admission to make. But it's a tough admission to make that we're totally blind because, well, let's just be practical. How many of us like to ask for directions? How many of us actually act, like to ask for directions? I got one, okay. You know, you mean you want your husband to ask for directions, right? How many of us like feeling helpless? How many of us like feeling helpless? I mean, we don't prefer, do we, to be led around by the hand? You may think fondly back on your childhood, but can you remember that moment in your childhood where that moment where you all of a sudden pulled your hand away from your parents? I don't need to hold your hand. My gosh, it's so embarrassing. Don't hold my hand right now. I can do this myself. We don't want to be held by the hand. We don't want to be led around by the hand. We don't want to ask for directions. We don't like feeling helpless. But here's the thing, and there's really no way around it. Without admitting that we are totally and completely blind, without that confession, we cannot and we will not experience the fullness and depth of our Father's grace. Unless we 
acknowledge, admit, confess, we are totally and completely blind apart from Jesus. Not just blind spots. We don't see anything. We will not, we can't experience the fullness and depth of our Father's grace. Without that repeated act of submission, you see, we can't have the experience of dependency. Without that repeated act of submission, we can't experience the joy of dependency, the peace and joy of discovering that Jesus has got this, that Jesus has got us. We can't experience the dependency of being reaffirmed again and again that Jesus is faithful, that his love is real, that his love changes things in us and around us. So let me ask us to start this morning. Have we truly faced our blindness apart from Jesus? Have we truly sat in that? We know Jesus. We've come to Jesus. We've given our hearts to Jesus. But beloved, have we allowed Jesus to touch our eyes? To affect our sense of vision? To change how we see ourselves? How we see each other? How we see the world? And as I put that question out there, let me give you a really quick but not easy way to answer it. If we're not seeing things the way that Jesus sees things, then our eyes are still closed. If we're not seeing things the way that Jesus sees things, then our eyes are still closed. Jesus talks a lot about how he sees foreigners. There are no outsiders to the kingdom unless they choose to make themselves outsiders. But every attempt is made for them to not be defined that way unless they self-define them that way. But we shouldn't put that label on anyone. There are no foreigners. Jesus talks a lot about enemies. He says, you know, great, you like the people who like you. Anybody can do that. But do you embrace your enemies? Because your enemy is really your neighbor. Jesus sees our enemies as our neighbors. Jesus says, strangers, there are no strangers. They're all friends. I don't call you servants. I call you friends. I've embraced you as friends. And as I've embraced you as friends, you must embrace each other as friends, not as strangers in my Father's kingdom. Beloved, how do we look and see the people around us? Do we still see foreigners, whether they're cultural, political, geographical foreigners, or do we see everyone as being a part of the kingdom? How do we look and see are the people around us. Do we have our neighbors over here, the people that are, we're with, and the people that we're not, our enemies over here? Or do we recognize that those who we would call our enemies are our neighbors? There's no difference between them as, as Jesus sees them. And do we look at the world? Do we hang on to what we were taught as children? Stranger danger. Or do the faces that we encounter as we leave this place, the people that we don't know, do we see in that person not a stranger to be feared, but another friend? In Christ, even if we don't know them, are we willing to get to know them, to see Christ in them? Jesus talks a lot about seeing in other ways, too. Jesus talks a lot about seeing with eyes of lust. Jesus talks about with eyes that envy. Jesus talks about eyes that, that are filled with greed. And he talks that that's not what he sees. That's not how our Father sees ourselves or this world, if we're still looking with lustful eyes, if we're still, if our vision is still filled with envy, if greed predominates what's in our line of sight, then we're not seeing things the way Jesus sees things. And that means our eyes are closed. The first step is admitting 
Not just that we have blind spots, that we're totally and completely blind apart from Jesus. But then that first real touch, that first moment when we reach out and are touched by Jesus, whether it's the very first time in our lives or it's, again, another, the first time we experience it and perhaps in an area in our lives where we realize our eyes are closed, that first encounter only leads to partial sight. Leads to partial sight. Do you ever stop and think that maybe one of the reasons why Jesus heals the blind man gradually is that full sight, to see anything and everything would have been overwhelming? Too much all at once for this man to absorb and take in? And that's a pattern that we see repeated a lot through Scripture, right? How often does God gradually reveal, give sight to people? Abraham, Moses, right? And, and oftentimes in the midst of these, these people that God opens their eyes to when they say, oh, I want it all. Moses, show me your glory. God says, you can't handle my glory. You can't see it all. It's this gradual reveal. Job, one of my favorites, Job, I want to see, I want to understand, and I, it's not my life verse, but it's one of my favorite scriptures. All right, Job, go, gird up your loins like a man. Can you see what I see? Let me take you a little different on this, too. Can you imagine being this man? Have you thought about this? Can you imagine being this, this man who's taken by the hand, friends, family, we don't know who is, taken by the hand to the one who he can't see but has been whispered to that this is the Messiah. We think this is the Messiah. This is the one. Imagine being this man, being led by the hand, and this one who is a healer, the Messiah, touches your eyes and then says, do you see anything? You get where I'm going with this? How would you respond to that question if you're that man? You've heard the stories, everyone else has been healed like that, right? Everyone says the healer. You see anything? Uh, yeah, looks great, looks great. How would we respond? Would we tell the truth? Would we admit that Jesus didn't fully restore our sight? I don't think we appreciate this man's honesty about his condition. Because in contrast, many of us are like the disciples who in contrast with this man are often not honest at least with themselves, about their spiritual condition. Is that not what we've seen throughout this with the disciples? Remember last week in the boat with Jesus? Remember the bread? You're talking about the bread. We got you, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't go, uh-huh. He says, he, he doesn't say, oh, you, you, you're, you're confused. Remember what Jesus says? He goes, are your hearts hardened? Do you not see? They acted like they got it. The disciples do this all the time. They act like they got it with Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we are so with you. What's he talking about right now? We are so with you. And Jesus more than once accuses them of being hard of heart. Too often, beloved, we're not being honest with Jesus, with ourselves about the limits of our perception about what God is up to, about what God is doing. We act like we get it. Many of us, we act like we get it. We, we throw, and you know how we act like we get it? You know how we do this? We throw around these cheesy, superficial, and frankly, biblically inaccurate spiritual platitudes. Oh, you don't understand what God's doing right now? You can't see it? Well, I can totally see it because you know the Lord never gives someone more than they can handle. Oh, you are so blind right now. You just need to see that everything happens for a reason. 
Oh, you can, you, you're struggling to understand, to perceive what God's doing right now? Well, let me tell you, I can see it clearly because you know, whenever God closes a door, he opens up a window. I'm so sorry, you're struggling right now to understand what's happening. You know, it's just, if you had enough faith like me, it would happen for you. Because you know, what you can't see, but I can clearly see, is that where God guides, you know, God provides. Because the truth is, for people who can see, if God brings you to it, he will bring you through it. I could go on, but I'm getting sick. (laughs) And I'll email you the list. So you memorize them and never say them again. Because when you say them, you think you're brilliant, but the person who's receiving it, they're not seeing any more clearly. They're getting hard in their heart. Yet we smile, we nod our head, we say these spiritual platitudes, we say these things as though, as though we see everything, but the truth is, and I know it, I know it as a pastor, because you, some of you have come to me, I know it as a pastor because I listen to you, I know it as a pastor because I shared with you my own wrestling. We throw around these cheesy platitudes as if we see everything clearly, and yet the truth is, deep down, secretly, silently, we have our doubts. We still have questions. We struggle to see, to make sense of it all. But, but we go on acting like we get it. Like we really can see what's going on, how God is working, when the truth is, the things around us are really fuzzy in terms of understanding what God is up to and how God's at work. Why would we do this? Why are we so, do we so often act this way when it comes to Jesus? Why would we settle for partial sight rather than a full view? Why would we do that? I think there's lots of reasons, and you know, I, I tapped into some of them and again, again in sharing last week for myself, but I, and I think this relates. One of the reasons why we do this is we don't like to wait. We don't care for stages of development. We want the quick fix, man. We want the instantaneous cure. We want the immediate results, and we want them so bad that sometimes we'll just convince ourselves we have them, even when we don't. Because the truth is, I mean, let's be honest, we look to Jesus to solve our problems and save our lives. We look to Jesus, but we aren't looking for Jesus. We aren't intending to wait for Jesus, to follow him. We don't want the unfolding of our salvation. We want the answers now. We want it all now. I mean, you can't get people to church if you tell them, well, it'll it'll gradually be revealed to you. No, no, it's going to change now. We're going to give you the answers now. It's going to happen now. Now is what we want. Beloved, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes we treat the first stage of our healing as though it were the final one, and we walk away. And let me parallel this with an experience that many of you can relate to in life. It's it's definitely my story, is I I avoid going to the doctor any way I possibly can. Oh, I'm getting better. No, you're actually getting worse. No, no, I feel fine. I'll just work it out on my own. I have to be dragged to the doctor. And then the doctor will go, okay, you know what, you need to take, I don't want any medicine. No, 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 you don't understand, I'm stronger than that. I don't need any medicine, and I have to be forced, okay, take this prescription. And then, as you know from last year, surgery. Oh, no, 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 no. I have to be forced into surgery. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you can relate to kicking and screaming, going to the doctor, or prescription, surgery even. And maybe you're like me, that you, you go through it, okay, fine, and then... Just when you're starting to feel better, you begin to skip the prescribed treatments. I don't need to take the rest of those antibiotics. I don't need to continue on with that physical therapy. 
Those follow-up appointments, that revised diet, feel great. Awesome. Beloved, when we encounter Jesus, many of us, when we've encountered Jesus, we feel better. And that's right on. When Jesus comes into your life, he changes things. We should feel better. Things change. We begin to see things differently. The problem is, is for many of us, we have partial sight because we have that initial encounter with Jesus, and then we run with it. We think we've got what we need, but we run away. We leave behind the one we need. And what I mean practically by leaving behind Jesus is we're not in the word. We're not engaging in prayer. We're not participating in the body of Christ. And I repeat this a lot, but these are the three. They don't change. There is a direct parallel in your life if you're saying, you know, I really just can't see Jesus in my life. I really don't see what God is up to in the world. I really have no ability to perceive anything. There's a direct parallel if you are not in the very words that God gives us, the way that God reveals himself to us. If you're not regularly committing to prayer, Talking to God, and I mean talking, speaking out loud and listening to what God has to say. If you're not regularly committing to get outside of your own self-examination and participate in a larger community where you're serving, where you're experiencing the sacraments, there's no wonder that you're more and more things are getting fuzzy and out of focus. On our own, it's easy to mistakenly confuse our impaired and limited vision for the full spiritual sight. Beloved, how's your vision of the kingdom? Do you see Jesus at present, present and at work in your lives? Do you see Jesus? Jesus says he's there. Jesus says he goes before us. Do you see Jesus at work in your life and in the lives of those around you? And if you're not, if your spiritual sight is fuzzy, if your spiritual life is unfocused, if the people around you look like objects or obstacles to your desires, like trees, then you need to get reconnected with Jesus. You need to touch Jesus again. You need to let Jesus touch you. And again, it comes through engaging God's word, engaging in prayer, and being a part of the community of faith. And it's not a, a magic formula, but those are the three ways in which God touches us. Because it's too easy for our vision of Jesus to be blurred otherwise by the lenses through which we want to see Jesus. This is what I shared with you last week. I created my own lenses. And we create our own lenses for seeing Jesus out of our cultural and personal limitations. We want so much for Jesus to be what we'd like him to be that we find ourselves unable to see him as he clearly is. But, but as much as that can happen, and, and I'm telling you, I, I, I'm, I can say this without any reservation, on the opposite side, if we continue to read and study scripture, that doesn't mean we always understand it. That doesn't mean we, it's, it's perfectly you know, easy all the time, but if we continue to put ourselves in God's word, to read it, to speak it back to ourselves, if we commit ourselves to continue to pray, to get down on our knees, to separate time where we can get away from the noise and hear God and actually speak to God, really wrestle with God, if we get ourselves into a place where we serve others, where we, again, we're still working through the, the fuzziness, the struggle, but in the midst of that, we're committing to serve others, to put ourselves out there. It happens every time. The scales of our own agendas will fall away. And, and surprisingly, unexpectedly, we will begin to catch our vision, the vision of our Father's kingdom. It's really important at this point that you hear when I talk about partial sight, I'm not just talking about partial sight when I talk about scripture and prayer and service as the three. I'm not just talking about partial sight due to knowledge. That can be true, 
But what I'm really focusing on right now is the limited vision we often have as believers, as disciples, in terms of empathy and faith. It's interesting in the Gospels, the continual struggle that the disciples have in their lack of vision is a lack of empathy and a lack of faith. Because here's the thing, we all can experience Jesus and we can have that partial sight, that partial opening of our eyes. And for some of us, there's two camps of where people go in that moment. Some people stay within the church and they, they tell themselves they have full sight when they have partial sight and that's where they slap on those spiritual platitudes. They act like they get it when, and they don't face the questions and the doubts that they have. They just kind of throw those things out there. But the other camp are people who realize their partial sight, but then they leave the church. They leave the church. They experience that first touch of baptism like Nolan. Maybe later on in life, they confirm their faith. They experience being a part of the body, but they left. They left because they could not be content with sticking spiritual platitudes over their questions and their doubts. They could not be content lying to themselves or hiding from themselves the struggles that they had. They left the church because there was no room in the church for their doubts and for their questions. Beloved, we need to face this. I know I hit this, but it's the, the world, it's the times in which we live and we need to wake up. As the church, we have acted for far too long like we have all the answers. As the church, together, we have acted like we have all the answers, like we ever, see everything clearly and everyone else is just blind to the truth. Beloved, what if instead of pretending like we see fully? What if instead of acting afraid or critical when others around us raise questions or doubts, what if instead we held on to Jesus' hand a little tighter and trusted, us, trusted him to lead us and them forward? What comes to mind when I'm sharing this with you, and it's been right in my, my line of sight recently, is a father who I talked to, a father who right now is coming alongside Rather than rebuking or rejecting his daughter, who's questioning the reality of hell. He's not saying, well, you know what, if you don't believe in that hell, you're going to end up in that hell you don't believe in. He's coming alongside her as she truly is wrestling with, how can hell be real? How can hell exist? I'm talking, I'm thinking of that friend who's willing to sit with people he grew up with. People he grew up with and to listen to the rawness of their struggling to believe. To listen to their finally confessed doubts. This friend isn't sitting there and saying, you know, you better get your act together. You better, you know, you know what, you better pull yourself together because otherwise you, you are just, you're doomed, man. I can't have anything to do with you. No, I'm going to, this friend says, I'm going to sit with you. Even though we grew up together, even though we at one time believed all the same things, I'm going to sit in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your doubts. I think of the person who I talked to recently who isn't willing to shy away from another person's anger and frustration towards Jesus, towards God. Everyone else in the family could, you know, is basically just assuming, well, I'm, I'm sure they're probably fine with the Lord. I'm not getting a real signal there, but I'm just going to trust that they're good with Jesus. And this person said, no, I'm not just going to be trusting or assuming. I'm actually going to ask. And when I ask, I'm going to stick around for the answer when that person says, well, no, actually, I've got some serious problems, some serious anger I need to unload. Are you willing to hold it with me? Beloved, as the church, 
We need to be a place which stands up for the truth. Please hear me say that. We need to be a place that stands up for the truth. But part of that truth is we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. The truth we have is Jesus. And yes, Jesus has all the answers. So you won't be like, well, we don't have all the answers, but we have Jesus. Jesus has all the answers. You're just wordsmithing. No, we don't have all the answers. We have Jesus, and in Christ are all the answers. But right now, in case you missed it, our sight is partial. And I'm not just rifting. I'm not just making this up. Let me quote Paul. Paul, who writes to the community of faith, just like us in the midst of their own struggles and doubts, when Paul says, in the midst of continued questions and wrestling, Paul says, we see in part. Through a glass darkly. Our view is partial. And beloved, I think part of the reason why our view is partial is because if it wasn't partial, why follow Jesus? It's partial so we keep our eyes on him. So we follow him. What I'm trying to say to you this morning is that a bunch of people, and I'm not just talking about here at Grace, even in your homes, in your own sense of community, a bunch of people pretending like we see and understand everything is not being the church. But a community of disciples Wrestling with the doubts, wrestling and engaging the questions, willing to take on the pain of this world by being committed to Christ, by letting Jesus lead us by the hand and increase our vision, that's the church. That's compelling. Beloved, seeing people look like trees isn't enough. We need Jesus' perception of seeing God walking in all people. And that kind of sight begins by confessing as Christians, as the church, that we don't see everything clearly yet, but we will. This story does its work when we can see our own lack of vision in the disciples' partial sight. We are in no less of divine healing and intervention to be able to see what God is doing, and it is often that we fail to see, even partially, the first time around. And if that's you, if you go, gosh, it's not even a matter of partial sight. I feel like I can't see it all, or I feel like I'm, con I'm completely missing it. Fear not. Because if you were paying attention, if you're keeping count, it's taken more than two times for Jesus' own disciples to see what his words mean and who he is. Twice the disciples have seen Jesus feed the crowds, and twice they have failed to grasp what they are seeing. And if we add to that the number of times, I don't even know what the count is, the number of times Jesus has taken the disciples off by themselves, it's definitely more than once, so they can hear and know what others do not, and yet they still don't understand. They still can't see it. And added to this, on Ash Wednesday, even though the disciples are about to get it, to realize that Jesus is the Christ, just when they begin to see, their vision's going to fail again. Through the second half of the Gospel of Mark, this is where we're going to go through Lent, the disciples' sight and understanding of Jesus will become more and more blurred and fuzzy because of their fears because of their hopes that are lost, because of their inability to understand the cross that this Messiah must suffer and die upon. It won't be till after the resurrection that things clear up for them. And I don't know about you, but I find great encouragement, tremendous invitation to be found in this, in the continued example of Jesus' patience with his first disciples. The disciples often see nothing, no matter how hard they strain their eyes. And when they do begin to see, they often forget to keep looking at Jesus before they leap. But Jesus doesn't give up on them. Even after their disastrous failures during his trial and death, he keeps touching them. He keeps opening their eyes to his vision of what the kingdom of God looks like. And beloved, Jesus doesn't give up on us either. 
He keeps reaching out for us. He keeps calling us to follow him so that he can give us eyes to see what his father has done and what his father is continuing to do to redeem, to reconcile, and yes, restore this broken world of ours. We should rejoice that our Father is patient, gracious, and committed to keep working with us, to keep touching us until we see clearly the glory and constancy of his love for us. That's the final outcome. That's the destination. That's where we're headed together, seeing clearly to being known, to know as we are fully known, as Paul writes. But this understanding, this sight, is a gradual process, and it never ends. Our God is a very personal God. His desire is to be more to us, to be seen as more than a spiritual vending machine that dispenses miracles or answers according to the amount of prayers that we offer. Our God comes to us in Jesus to be seen in the flesh. Our God in Christ wants to lead us to a quiet place, out of the city, away from the noise and pollution in our lives, to a quiet place where we can personally experience his presence, his healing power, not only of our physical ailments, but especially our spiritual blindness. Jesus, do you notice, took this man away from the crowds, and then Jesus looked at this man intently. That's what our God wants. Our God wants to look to us And our God is looking at us intently. Our God wants relationship. God gives us, our God gives us time. Our God gives us intention. We are worth his spit. Our God puts some skin on. He puts some skin in the game because our God wants to be seen by us so that our vision for life can become clear, lucid, so we can finally see ourselves in this world around us as he created them to be. But let's be honest, in a culture, in a world in which we live in, in a world more and more where we celebrate our independence, where we celebrate our anonymity, where we celebrate our autonomy, this kind of invitation and challenge from Jesus, this kind of invitation, intimacy that Jesus offers, it can be threatening, perhaps even unwanted. But deep down, isn't this the kind of relationship that we're looking for? Isn't this the kind of relationship that we need? Our sight is limited, but if you encounter Jesus, one of the first things that you see clearly, one of the first things you begin to see is that friends take time to see each other clearly. Friends take time to see each other clearly. You can't buy love. You can't hurry love. I'm not going to break into song. You can't fake love. Deep, true, real love is the willingness to be touched and to touch. It's the willingness to reach out across often unspoken, unacknowledged human boundaries that separate us and dare to be with each other in the midst of those spaces. It's the father who says to his daughter, I don't even know if I believe that hell is real. I will sit with you in the midst of those doubts as to whether or not hell is real. It's the friend who says, I'm surrounded by people that I grew up with who no longer believe what we all once believed together, but I'm going to sit with you in the midst of your confusion. I'm going to sit with you in the midst of the alternatives. I'm going to sit with you even in the midst of your apathy. It's the the family member who says, I am not just going to assume. I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to stay and listen to your answer. I'm not going to run away from the anger and the pain that you have no place to put. 
And it's when those people in our lives turn on us in the dark and say, you're not afraid? You're not angry? You're not going to run when I say I don't believe in hell? You're not going to run when I say I don't even know if I believe what you believe? You're not going to leave me when I tell you how angry I am at God? How basically I think God could just die for all I care? No. How can you not be afraid? How can you not leave? Because Jesus is holding my hand. And I want to hold yours. And if you hold my hand, he's holding yours. And we'll sit in this together. Deep, true, real love is working every day to look intently to really see people, the people that God's put in front of us clearly. I don't know, for me, that's just one way to think about the gospel, this call to discipleship. It's to understand that following Jesus is about taking friends, taking family, and sometimes even unexpected people by the hand, away from the crowds, and looking at them intently. And in confronting our shared, not just theirs, our shared vulnerability, together seeking mutual healing in Christ. That's what we're called to. That's the call of discipleship for me. Because, beloved, by searching and seeking the humanity of another person, we see more clearly Jesus in our world and in our own humanity as well. So let's not walk away. Let's not walk away from this eye-opening encounter with Jesus. Let us not choose to look away, to remain blind to what Jesus is trying to help us see. And that It's this, true spiritual insight takes time and it takes reliance upon Jesus. It's a process. It's a process of being taken by the hand by Jesus, being led away from all the distractions and competing elements of our lives so that Jesus can look us intently in the eyes and see us and we can see him. It's a relationship built on words, the word of God. These words, the living word of God, but it's a relationship of words that's deepened by regular conversation, by speaking these words, by receiving these words through prayer, speaking and listening to Jesus. It's a relationship that's affirmed again and again by sacrament, by coming to this table, his table, and embracing anew his offer of gracious hospitality of acceptance, of forgiveness, of commitment, and the promise that he will bring us home through the sharing of bread and the passing of the cup. It's a process, a process of relationship whereby we learn how to see. Our vision of the kingdom gets stronger by having the eyes of Jesus and seeing others. Not as objects, as more than trees, but as flesh and blood people who are struggling, who may even be resisting finding their way home. Beloved, let us see. Let us let Jesus take us by the hand and let us begin to learn how to truly see ourselves, each other, and this world in which we live. Amen.